you might recognize the voice of today's guest. Paul Quirk is a fellow podcaster in our niche of buying businesses. Paul founded and hosts Buy and Build, which, very much like Acquiring Minds, interviews acquisition entrepreneurs and people in and around search. Paul's geographic focus is Europe. He's based in Switzerland. So his pod is a wealth of stories of UK and continental searchers. Well, Paul himself is now an accomplished searcher, and that's what we spend most of our time on today. He found a window and door installation business in the UK. We, of course, get into what he liked about this particular business, what the acquisition looked like, how he financed it, and how the transition has gone. One interesting wrinkle is that the business is in the UK while Paul's family is in Switzerland and he commutes. So consider this a tutorial on how, if pressed, you might make a remote acquisition work for you. Enjoy this conversation with Paul Quirk, owner of Amber Home Improvements and host and founder of the podcast Buy and Build. Welcome to Acquiring Minds, a podcast about buying businesses. My name is Will Smith. Acquiring an existing business is an awesome opportunity for many entrepreneurs, and on this podcast, I talk to the people who do it. You've probably heard me mention SM Bash, the conference in Orlando for acquisition entrepreneurs, SMB owners, and investors. It was such a valuable event, I met no less than 12 Acquiring Minds guests there in person, hosts of other podcasts in this space, and if you're on SMB Twitter, it was a who's who of all the biggest accounts. Well, SM Bash is coming back around, this time in Austin in April, and I'll definitely be going back. I'm told by the SM Bash team that this year they're going even deeper on content relevant to search, including a focus on finding investors for your acquisition and inviting a lot of investors to attend as well. For serious searchers or those who've recently acquired, SM Bash is really the leading event. There are others associated with universities, but as far as I'm aware, this is the biggest and best indie conference for entrepreneurship through acquisition. Check out smbash.com, six letters, S-M-B-A-S-H.com, or click the link in the show notes. See you in Austin. Paul Quirk, welcome to Acquiring Minds. Thanks, Will. Thanks for having me. Uh, excited to be here. Join the illustrious guest list that's been on Acquiring Minds and been a fan of the podcast myself for some time, so happy to be on. Oh, that's that's great to hear, Paul, especially coming from you. Uh, you are actually here in two capacities. So first, as an acquisition entrepreneur, a few months ago, you bought Amber Home Improvements, a window and door installation business in the UK, but you are also host of the Buy and Build podcast. So uh, as I was just referencing, you're a fellow ETA podcaster. Um, so we will uh, get into that toward the end, podcaster to podcaster. I can't wait to, to ask you some questions about how that's gone. But let's start off, Paul, with some background on you. You are originally from South Africa. So how did you end up in the UK? Um, okay, well, I I guess the first, first point uh, is that I am a British citizen, even though I never came to the UK until I was about 22 but my mother is is from here. So that gives me the UK passport. And that may not mean much to people listening, but the South African passport doesn't really isn't really helpful when you're traveling. You have to get visas for everywhere and it's difficult to work in different places. So I was lucky I kind of 
it was a bit of a yeah a bit of a lottery uh won the lottery there in terms of passports for people coming from south africa but i studied there up until graduating university and then i applied for a few internships at some of the major banks firstly in south africa but it was complicated we have a not to go into the weeds but a complicated um history uh, and then when it comes to to employment it, it can be difficult depending on your on, on your race so it was a little bit complicated for me so i applied overseas to a few banks um somehow lucked an internship at jp morgan in geneva um i'd apply i I'd selected london as my primary location but at the time my now wife was accepting a job in geneva and i was, th I was thinking okay i'll go to london you go to geneva we'll figure it out from there and then Funnily enough, landed up in Geneva too. They 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 found a role that they thought I would fit. Uh, so as an intern there in Geneva, I just worked really hard and just told everyone that I wanted a job. I'd finished graduating. Everyone was going back to do their masters, and somehow they 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 were nice enough to give me a full time job. And I spent about ten years there at J P Morgan. I moved around a bit, so I did come to London eventually. Um, did a few back and forth to New York, and was ultimately reporting up to New York, but spent most of my time in Geneva. Um, and it was actually there where I had heard, or I heard about a guy who had left to start a search fund. And that's where I've kind of, the, 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 the first time I'd heard about this concept. Um, and he went on to successfully acquire and, and roll up, uh, I guess, I think it was tertiary education institutes, I'm not sure, in Mexico. Um, mm. His name is Angel Alvarez. And now mm -hmm. he's one of the managing partners of Elza Capital. He invests in searches based in Barcelona and I think Mexico too. But when I heard about it, I was like very intrigued. I was still young. I think I was an, maybe still an intern or an analyst, uh, but it kind of, you know, it just sat there at the back of my mind. And then later on, when I decided to do something a little bit entrepreneurial, this was always kind of at the back of my mind. And I'd slowly, you know, read the Stanford studies and a lot of the literature. I didn't and haven't done an MBA. Um, so, you know, I was always maybe felt like a bit of an imposter a few years back. I was like, well, can I actually go down this route? Um, but yeah, so that's, I eventually decided I, I was going to do it. And, and the language barrier was something that restricted me. I thought about doing it back home in South Africa, but, you know, I touched on kind of the challenges um, mm -hmm. on the hiring side there. Uh, it's already, you know, searching and acquiring is already pretty, pretty complex endeavor. So I didn't want to make it extra, extra complex. And then the language barrier dictated I, I, I could only rarely focus on the UK. So that's why I decided to, to focus on searching and acquiring in the UK. And I was doing that while based in kind of Geneva, France, on the border there where, where I was coming from. And then finally acquired the company based in the UK. So now I'm here during the week, Monday to Friday, fly back most weekends. So it's pretty busy, but enjoying it. Wow. So that's, we'll, we'll get into that, but... Um you know, a remote acquisition. I mean, location and proximity to your acquisition is, is of course, a big theme. Uh, but being doing it cross cross uh, country lines is this is this is a first for me. Very very European of you. Um, of course, <laughs> in the states we don't um, we don't get a lot of that. So that's that's fascinating. We'll get into it. Um, but just going back a little bit, Paul, to your your interest in search. Had you always been entrepreneurial, or had you ever been entrepreneurial? What do you think grabbed you about this concept? Yeah, I think so. Yes, um, with not much success, uh, I had been entrepreneurial. So a couple of startups. One was when I was in South Africa, an internship placement agency. I mean, it was really small scale, but it literally cost nothing. Cost a website. I found out early on from my wife, who is French, 
and she had come to South Africa on an internship, that often the European schools will pay for the students to come do an internship in South Africa. A lot of people want to come to a place like South Africa because it's beautiful and they get to learn English if it's not their first language. So mm -hmm. I basically had the idea to be an agency for that and place them in companies where they could do internships. That was kind of short-lived, but I guess technically profitable because it cost me very little money. Um, and then later I launched, when I was in Switzerland, an organic sports supplement brand. I, I'm a bit of a health and fitness enthusiast, if you will, and, I, and, it, and it was very difficult to find what I wanted in Switzerland. It's a very beautiful, developed country, but they're very, like, they're, you can't order things on Amazon. They don't, they don't have Amazon there. Well, at least they didn't when, when I was there. So it was, you know, you could buy whatever Swiss, but that's limited, and there was nothing like mm. this in Swiss. So I launched that. That was reasonably successful, probably marginally profitable, but extremely hard, like trying to create a brand um, online, uh, kind of e-commerce wasn't as popular as I, I guess, thought. Uh, I probably should have mm -hmm. done more research, um, but I just assume, you know, Switzerland, people are going to buy things online. They have, you know, you know, they have they have money they should, but it wasn't really the case. So I had to like pivot to brick and mortar, stocking it in gyms. And eventually after like the third manufacturing run, I, I wound that down. Um, but that was a good learning experience, but just brutal. And I was doing that while still working at JP Morgan, um, which, you know, just makes it even more tough, but it was never going to replace my kind of banking salary. So I just kind of threw in the towel really. Um, and then- And what year was that? That was, I'd have to check exactly well, but probably around 2016-ish, I'd say. Okay. 2015, okay. 16. Um, and, and yeah, like at the back of my mind, the search fund thing was always brewing. And then I, 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 found, I found myself a little bit like, um, Things weren't really changing too much from the JP Morgan side. I kept on getting promoted, but the role was not really evolving as much as I would have liked. So I started thinking about different options and this kind of came back as an option. I started digging into it more and consuming podcasts a little bit more and kind of educating myself compared to when I'd first heard about it as an analyst. There was so much more out there. So you can kind of like educate yourself before you hit the ground running. Um, I listened to your, 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 your podcast just the other about about the two guys that launched a hedge fund and then found their way into search funds. Yeah. Kind of, I, I, I can only imagine how difficult it must have been for them. I mean, they alluded to that, but it was a little bit easier when I started because there was so much literature out there. However, it's different in the UK. So I soon learned that, but I guess naively thought, okay, there's enough for me to kind of step away and do this and execute on this. And so then I decided to do it. And going back to replacing your salary with the with the attempt at the supplements business you know you had been, as you said jp morgan approaching 10 years at jp morgan um you know i would imagine that long of a tenure in high finance in geneva at jp morgan you know your salary starts to get pretty interesting at those levels uh, so you know that kind of a golden handcuffs handcuff situation so stepping out to do something entrepreneurial becomes and feels more and more risky um, mm. Did that play into your calculation at all? I mean, um, it, I guess, and another way to put that is like, you know, the the higher your salary, yeah. the more you know, successful your search has to be to replace said salary. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, it it definitely did. So there's pros and cons, right? You the, the high, like I I have a pretty simple life, so I was able to kind of save and invest along the way to allow me to to search and then also to hopefully, and, and it was the case, I guess, eventually invest in my acquisition too. Um, so that that was one of the benefits. The cons, like you said, is kind of the opportunity cost, I guess. Um, 
And I, I think I was in a fortunate situation. So when I was deciding to do it, the offices in Geneva were going, kind of going through a restructuring. Uh, some people lost their jobs. Some people were asked to move to either New York or London as they were kind of you know downsizing Geneva fuel because it's an expensive place to employ people. Um, mm-hmm. And I I had, I guess, been offered roles in, in both of the other locations. And I asked if, if I turn it down, you know, do I just get the package like everyone that just basically lost their jobs? And the answer, the, the, the short answer was yes. Uh, I didn't really allude to why I was asking the question, but you know, it was it was an additional uh, lump sum, if you will. Yeah. Um, yeah. So that kind of made the decision, you know, not a little bit easier, a lot easier, because then it gives you a little bit of runway. So you're not really eating into the investments, your investment saving from day one. And I and I so the risk is then if you fail, you have to go back and kind of market yourself and tell people what you were doing for, I don't know, one, two years, et cetera. And I spoke to a few people about that and they they kind of, you know, gave me the confidence that I could, you know, sell myself on on kind of the failed search, if you will. Mm-hmm. Um again, maybe naively so. Then I just thought, okay, you know what, I'm I'm gonna I'm gonna take this option. I've I've always been kind of fine with risk um mm-hmm. that's that's probably i don't know if it's a strength or a weakness but it's definitely a quality that i have um and i just thought i'm gonna i'm gonna take that risk and and see how it how it plays out so yeah i mean like you said pros and cons but i thought the 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 potential upside outweighed the downside so so here we are and so to be clear you got something of a severance as yeah. on your yeah, on, yeah. as you left yeah well that was yeah. that was happy kind of happy timing or the way you played that Okay, and so um, what, where are we now? What 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 date, roughly? When I left J.P. Morgan. Yeah, yeah, and you, yes, and officially decided to pursue your search. It would have been the end of twenty twenty, I believe. So I searched for the for basically the whole of twenty one, the beginning of twenty two, or like half of twenty two. Um, yeah, so there we go, end of twenty twenty. That's right. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Uh, and and I believe you started the podcast at the end of twenty twenty one. Does that sound right? That you were. Yeah, it was, you were, a, it was about like the, a year the, into your search. Yeah, maybe kind of September-ish. Well, I can't remember because we we kind of, um, at the time I had a co-host, David, who's, who's still a friend of mine. We pre, pre-recorded a handful just to see mm-hmm. if we liked it, if there were any good. And then we launched. I can't remember exactly when we started recording versus launching, but you're probably about right. Yeah. 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 Okay. All right. And so you are, you're in Geneva. You decide to do a self-funded search? Yeah, yeah. Okay. Talk us through that decision process to to realize you're going to be living in Geneva, searching in the UK, hopefully acquiring in the UK, but but continuing indefinitely to 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 live and operate the business from Geneva. Yeah. Uh, well, I, I I now live in, in in the UK during the week, by the way, and operate from the UK. But at the time, yeah, okay. I was again maybe a little bit naive, uh, but I was just thinking, all right, I'll just look kind of where I am located around Geneva, because it is pretty international. I soon found out that all sm- small business owners are basically only want to speak French in the French region uh, mm. and the UK and even South Africa initially. And then very quickly, like a month or two into it, um, realized like the UK is going to be the best option from the language standpoint, culturally, uh, from kind of business friendly ecosystem wise. So it, it probably took me a month to six weeks to really focus in on the UK because I was maybe as everyone does early on in their search, weighing options in the US, I don't know, maybe, maybe you're looking at kind of different states and then you decide on, okay, it's just going to be these two states. If you're self-funded, you kind of have a little more flexibility. So mm-hmm. yeah, it, it was it was a bit of a, a learning process for the first few weeks for sure. 
Okay. Um, so you dialed that in, you realized it was going to be the UK. Give us some more parameters of your search size. Uh, I know you ultimately developed a thesis. Talk us through some of these parameters. Yeah. So early on, uh, I knew I wanted to go self-funded. Um, and I was, I was flexible enough on size, I guess, early on before I figured out, um, some of the other parameters like debt and, you know, debt equity ratios and things like that, that kind of skew towards a certain size. And I can get into what I mean by that, but I was a little bit flexible thinking, okay, I can go on like really fragmented industries like fire and security, buy small and just kind of roll up quickly. And then I mm -hmm. don't mind kind of buying a job, but then after like maybe acquisition two and three, it becomes less of a job um, because I had a bit of savings investments to, to live from. Uh, and then kind of changed my mindset later on to, you know, at least 500,000 pounds. So I don't know what that converts. This product, like 650 to $700,000 uh, upwards in, in EBITDA was probably about right because the size of debt needed uh, needed to be a certain level. Otherwise, people don't really waste any time on on giving you that debt financing. And it's a complicated debt market here. Um, and then also multiples aren't three times like, you know, you read everywhere. Sometimes they can get a little bit north of four or five times depending on the industry. So I quickly realized I'll have to look a little bit bigger because just from a cash flow standpoint, after debt servicing and the multiples you're paying, it doesn't make sense to be too small. So yeah. that was also kind of an evolving process. Um, but, but yeah, so I guess that came you know, maybe months in after I learned these things and probably after I started speaking to people that ultimately became guests on the podcast because I quickly learned, you know, it's there was a lot of literature around the US um, markets and then you have kind of the international space, uh, um, the report that's done by IESE, or have you pronounced the business school in Spain. Uh, yeah. But the UK is different on a lot of aspects and, you know, as a result the way you have to search and the types of businesses you can acquire are, are a little bit different. So as I learned that, my kind of strategy in searching uh, evolved. Top of the list for most acquisition entrepreneurs after they close on the business is digital marketing. Is the business doing it properly or at all? Has the website been touched since 2005? In many cases, that website is going to need an overhaul. Eversite is a firm that works with searchers to do custom redesigns of their websites for a flat monthly fee. So you don't need to spend down your precious working capital for a custom redesign of the website. That and all ongoing support is baked into their monthly fee. So your website cost is simple and predictable month after month with the assurance of knowing that you can ping the folks at Eversite for any changes you might need. And you will talk to a human. Call or email your Eversite rep, make a request, and expect your changes live in hours, sometimes minutes. There is so much going on when you transition that business you buy. Make the website management easy by putting it in the capable hands of Eversite. Check out eversite.com slash searchers, E-V-E-R-S-I-T-E dot -E com slash searchers. So for the UK searchers who might be listening, what are two or three of these things that you learned, that these idiosyncrasies of, of the UK market that you learned the hard way that you might just accelerate somebody's knowledge of and awareness of? Yeah, so 
if I mean, the, the first biggest one is the debt market is completely different. So we don't have anything that looks even remotely similar to the SBA loan. So if you're going down the self-funded route, you it's very unlikely you can go to a conventional bank. So you have to go to kind of these alternative lenders or you know private credit funds and almost get what would look like mezzanine debt in the US, I would imagine, in terms of kind of the the, the interest rates you're paying. So it's quite expensive. And then the term of those loans is kind of five to six years versus 10 years. So you can't really lever up like 80, 90% like self-funded searches do in the US. You have to be a lot more conservative on that debt number because, you know, like it may sound scary leveraging up 80, 90%, but it's really the debt servicing. That's that's the kind of thing you really need to look at, right? And right. that's why, it, you know, it's just the economics are not the exact same and therefore you need a bigger equity check and yep. or a bit more seller financing. Uh, to kind of bridge that gap. And then that changes kind of, okay, well, I thought my X amount of equity could get me so far, but actually m maybe maybe there's a little bit of a shortfall there and maybe I have to ri raise more outside equity than I originally anticipated. So that's, that's the first big one. Uh, the second thing I would say is probably around the, the, the broker, broker deals. So intermediaries come in all shapes and sizes, I would say. In the UK, there's... Mm -hmm one or two really big brokers that, um, I mean, it's it's very unregulated. I don't know if it's more or less unregulated in the, in the UK and uh, in the US, but their business model essentially, from what I understand, and one of them is a public company, so I think people have, have kind of reverse engineered that this is the case, but they're incentivized. It's, it's basically like a retainer model rather than a success fee model. So they promise mm. business owners... Um, oh, I can world. sell your business for, for 10 times. Yeah. You'll definitely get a million for this or 2 million or 10 million for this. The seller obviously believes that and they've kind of got that in their mind. And then you have these conversations and, you know, it's just like, it's basically a waste of time because you think, you know, you, you suggest what would be a reasonable price at a reasonable structure and it's way, way, you know, off of their expectations. So that would be, I, I would say, kind of target more corporate finance intermediaries or accounting firms and slightly more professional, if you will, um, apologies if I'm offending anyone, but um, uh, intermediaries that are more success-based driven. And a lot of the the kind of main street brokers in the UK, the, the big ones are, or don't seem to be based on success fees. So that's, that's another thing. And then maybe combined with that is the multiple discussion because they're promised such high multiples I don't know if that's the reason why multiples are, seem to be higher than what I hear in the US, but generally they are. Like any anything recurring just seems to be like five, six times. Um, uh, even for small businesses, it's not like oh, this is you know this is a really small business. You're buying a job, therefore you can easily get three times. No one seems to really want to hear that. It's just um, so. I mean, not. I mean, I, I my 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 the company I bought was around three times EBITDA, so it's not like you can't find them. But I just think. You know, I remember looking at Biz Buy Sell some months back and you, you literally, they, they give you the price on the listing and it's slap yeah. bang three times. Like you would never, ever see anything like that in the UK. It's all, there's no prices quoted. And then, like I said, expectations are just crazy, crazy um, between the buyer and seller. Wow, man. Well, you've really shifted my perspective here, Paul, because here in the US, we talk all the time about how difficult it is to find a great business to buy. And you've just like layered on three further disadvantages that you have in the UK. I mean, you're making it sound extre extremely difficult there. Yeah. It's also a smaller country, a smaller market, so there are fewer targets. 
So I imagine that the, the pickings are slimmer. On the other hand, there are probably less searchers running around too. So there's also maybe less competition for deals. How did, how did that feel? I know you don't have anything to compare it to, but did it feel super competitive? Are there a lot of Paul Corks running around competing with you uh, to, to buy businesses? Um, yeah, and maybe if I can just add one more thing on to, because it is more challenging, I think, in the UK. But one thing I mentioned in terms of um, the structuring was the what I think the US people refer to as seller financing. Yeah, here it's you know there's there's different phrases for it, but essentially that's typically interest free, and as a percentage of total EV, you'll see that getting at times twenty, thirty percent, forty percent sometimes to kind of help with that debt component. Oh. Uh, yeah, so well, that that, that is that is that does help. So like maybe net net, the ca from a cash flow standpoint, you're still not going to see ten years on even on that piece. But from an interest rate standpoint, maybe it gets close to what the US is. So I would just it's not all it's not all horrible. <laughs> um, and that's a, actually and let me Paul before you answer my question about the competition, let me also yeah. ask. Um, about bridging the gap, um, because the multiples are higher and things are more expensive. Does that mean, are there kind of a, a handful or more than a handful of SMB acquisition investors? Here, there are there are kind of like some, you know, once you get into the world at all and start looking to raise money for your deal, you know, uh, the short list emerges pretty quickly. It's a small world and people kind of know the names. Is it like that there? Are there some pretty active um, search investors there in the UK? Is that, yeah. So are there yeah. go-tos to bridge that gap, to bridge that equity gap? There certainly are. Um, there's there's ones that will focus tr strictly on traditional search funds because they know, you know, it's it's very structured and they know and they know what 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 uh, is in front of them. And then the self funded searches, it is also quite structured from what I found early on in my conversations. They expect kind of some portion of your equity to be vesting over time. It, it, it like which which is ne neither good nor bad. I just found that it was very like this is how you. This is how we expect investor equity terms to look like, and you can't really deviate. And from mm. what I'd learned from kind of maybe maybe the U the U.S. counterparts from from people on your podcast and reading you know search fund and the likes is you, you can kind of take a deal and maybe it's negotiable, right? Because you, you mm -hmm. you've raised the debt, the equity gap kind of is 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 a bit of a moving target, etc. So I I took that approach, and maybe the network from my podcast helped me find investors outside of the search fund ecosystem if you will but they're mm -hmm, kind of mm -hmm. they're familiar with small business acquisitions so they definitely are and i think there are also like i said other people that would be comfortable financing these types of deals that aren't kind of part of the mba communities if you will because i feel like a lot of it stems from the mba programs like the ivy League mba programs so there's there's both and i don't think either one is better or worse it's just you know it depends on the deal depends on the searcher so it's not too bad i think it's definitely they're definitely fewer than the US, but it, like you said, it's a smaller market too. So I don't think it's necessarily too complicated. And some people, or quite a few investors, um, like I know you had on Alex Glasner on your podcast a while back, he had yeah. a handful of US investors on his cap table. A lot of the traditional search funds will have US or um, you know, international investors on the cap table. So even though self-funded skews to more kind of UK-based investors. That's that's not always the case. So people do, you know, want some international exposure. So we we have a good mix. And I don't, I don't think that's too complicated on the equity side. I, I would argue it's more difficult on the debt side. Yeah. Yeah. Great. And before we move on, I just want to correct myself. I, I made it sound like in the US, we have a small handful of, of go-to investors. And in fact, 
there are well-known names in the investment community for sure. But that's not to say there's all sorts of sources of capital over here. So for the listeners, I just want to kind of correct, correct the record there. It's not to say that there's five or 10 places to get capital if you got a good deal. <laughs> there are a lot of them in the US. Moving on, Paul. Um, so, so did you butt heads with other searchers as you were looking for your deal? How competitive is the market? Um, it's, it's not too competitive, I would say. I didn't really butt heads. You, you hear of uh, people searching in your industry and then may maybe they would become uh, or share less information, if you will, because maybe they thought it was or they think it's more competitive because it's a smaller market. But I didn't find that to be the case. I mean, I think I think what you do run into a lot is other acquisition. Because so maybe I should define things a little bit like a searcher. I yeah. I find someone who's kind of found the literature from one of the MBA programs and kind of takes a, a more academic approach to it, if you will. And then mm -hmm. there's kind of broader business buyers that are, there's quite a lot of these types of buyers in the UK um, that take these training courses and try to buy businesses with no money down, which again, neither here nor like, it's not a good or a bad thing, but a lot of sellers are a little bit frustrated to hear that message because as you'd expect, they want as much money upfront as possible. So I found sometimes you get some pushback when you speak to an owner because they think that's the approach that you want to take. But if you kind of educate it or kind of market yourself early upfront as to the approach you want to take, that helps the conversation down that route. So that was one of the that was one of the challenges I found, um, kind of differentiating yourself against other business buyers. But in terms of searches, maybe because. I don't know the split between traditional and self-funded, but I would I would imagine traditional might be more common in the UK and the size would just dictate that we're looking at different types of companies. But it wasn't really something that I ran into a lot, I, I wouldn't say. Okay, okay. Uh, and yet it still was difficult to find your deal. So it um, talk to us about just the mechanics of your search. Were you doing a lot of cold outreach or were you doing just brokered, a combination? Uh, talk, how, how did you find Amber? Yeah, so I I I did both. Um, it's obviously tempting to look at things that are for sale because they're right there in front of you. You just click on a link and ask for a meeting. Um, mm -hmm. And I was pretty agnostic early on, just look, trying to look at everything that seems somewhat interesting uh, to try and educate myself. But always, you know, probably wasting a lot of time. But figuring like there were nine horrible things, but the one great thing you're like, oh, I can make this work if I just structure it like this way, this way. <laughs> I'll make this thing work. And, and so kicking, I know that temptation. Yeah. kicking a lot of tires. <laughs> um, and then I also did the proprietary. So I did it, I tried letters early on cause I'd heard that that worked in the UK, but it was expensive and it's impossible to track the data and yeah. the, 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 kind of the, the amount of people that get back to you were, was basically non-existent. So I went to email that wasn't mm -hmm. a ton better, but I did have a few interesting conversations, but it's just a very long process because you know the seller like you end up having to prepare the owner to sell and there's obviously a little bit of conflict there whereas if you're going by an intermediary hopefully most of that work is already done up front so i later started using kind of the more corporate finance type intermediaries to get better quality deals and that's eventually how i found uh amber through a corporate finance company i was actually i reached out to them for a different deal um and they mentioned this this company uh, in this industry, if I'd be interested, and I actually had a had a thesis on this industry, so I, it was yeah, I'm, I'm I'm very interested. So we had a look at it, and then you know some months down the line, we ended up closing on on that company. But 
I did both. Um, and I, yeah, I, th- I, I read through the, the SIG self-funded survey and I probably mm-hmm. agree with kind of the broker proprietary split, I mean, skewing to intermediary type deals for a self-funded searcher. I, I think probably from the conversation that I have, there's more success on that side. Uh, but proprietary deals definitely get done. I mean, Alex, again, just to go back to Alex, he, he, his was a proprietary deal. And, mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. Uh, so that's a good example. Yeah. And so when you were reaching out to intermediaries, to be clear, was it because you were seeing a listing and so you'd reach out to the intermediary with the listing? Or did you just do kind of, I mean, the the other kind of blend is cold outreach to intermediaries. So you cultivate relationships with intermediaries, not necessarily because they have a listing at this moment that you want to ask about, but you're just raising your hand and saying, hey, I'm interested in X, Y, and Z. I'm real. I'm serious about this. Um, You know, put me on your radar. Did you do some of that or was it mostly driven by like, okay, this intermediary has a listing I want to talk about and then you'd reach out? It was definitely, uh, initially it was definitely just, I see a listing and I can see who the intermediary is and then I reach out. And then later, probably having the podcast helped, then you kind of get on the list of the intermediaries and they're like, okay, he's, he seems somewhat serious. We'll share deals with Mm. with him too. And I Mm think, well, and I think I know with Amber specifically, I found it on a deal aggregation site called the Business Sale Report. And I guess similar to Business Buy Sell in the US, it just aggregates deals across, you know, the UK broadly. And uh, it's it's a pretty it's a pretty robust platform to to scan. And I would, you know, pretty much daily scan to see what's new, see what's out there. And I came across it. And then when I met with the intermediaries, it was the first time I dealt with this corporate finance company. They're a great bunch of guys. And and yeah, so I got a little bit lucky, I would say. Uh, mm. Yeah. Great. Well, um, so you get lucky. You find Amber. Uh, wh- tell us about tell us about this business. Yeah. So they do window door installation mainly. Some kind of extent, like what they call living extension. But in the UK, you find these conservatories and what they refer to as orangeries. But it's like an attachment to the side of your house, basically to extend your house into some living space. It's very, very popular in the UK, often with a lot of windows to allow light because the weather in the UK is not great. Uh, so these <laughs> things are really popular. Um, and I, so I, I mean, it ticks a lot of boxes from like a, from, from the search space, but the two boxes it probably doesn't tick is the retail nate, well, component. I wouldn't say it's exclusively retail and the non-recurring revenue component. And, I have my thoughts on recurring revenue. I mean, uh, um, as to why it's good and bad, but I wasn't kind of caught up on recurring revenue, especially when you're going down to smaller business because you typically find there's a lot of concentration. So I was fine with the non-recurring revenue. And as I looked into the sector, because I'd looked at a few, well, a handful of businesses in the sector before, I I quickly learned in the UK, it's the oldest housing stock in in Europe. Um, Mm -hmm. It's the least energy efficient. And what I thought was a very cyclical industry linked to construction, it's actually mostly the replacement market that drives a lot of um, the revenue. So yes, it's still somewhat of a discretionary spend, but if you need to replace a window or a door, which is the envelope of a property, you're going to do it. You're not going to kind of delay it. We're not we're not living in the Bahamas here. So I started to to dig into the sector, and and you know it it, it there's a lot of demand, and I thought that kind of mitigated the non-recurring revenue nature of the business. And as a result, there's essentially no concentration. I mean, each customer is like two, 3% of total sales. 
So it's a little bit of a different business, but I was comfortable with that. And I think the price paid was very fair and reasonable to kind of, you know, mitigate the non-recurring revenue um, aspect of the business. And yeah, I think there's a lot of tailwinds and and that that's kind of my thesis. And it seems, you know, that the economy is not in the best space now, but there still seems to be a ton of demand despite that. And so I'm pretty bullish on it and, and you know, keeping my eye out for other, other deals um, that come up. And I guess now deals kind of come to me, which is a nice change of pace <laughs> uh, after mm-hmm. you make your first acquisition. But but I, I think it's a great industry, and you know, it's a lot of for a lot of the reasons that um, everyone speaks about. You know, you know how you can kind of the low hanging fruit type things. Uh, I'm not going to get in, into all of them here, but you know, I think people have heard them all before. And then, if I talk about Amber itself, um, it was a good size business, so it ticked that box um, in terms of kind of the valuation discussion. It was in line with what I thought was fair. So kind of early on, that that was like, okay, this is worth keeping the conversation going. And as I got further and further into the business, I liked it more. I got on well with the owners. I get along well with the owners. Uh, two out of three of them, have, two out of the three had stayed on and kind of, you know, are, are a sounding board for me and kind of they're doing what they were doing beforehand. I've kind of seen myself as a consultant helping, like, you know, what can't you do? What do you think's worth doing and that you can't get to? So I split my time between that and kind of learning the business. Uh, so that's extremely helpful. Uh, and... Yeah, so for, for, for a lot of reasons, I really like the company and, and for the reasons I explained, I like the sector. So yeah, I mean, happy to go deeper in, in, into yeah. any of those, Will. Yeah, yeah, uh, a bunch of follow-up questions to that. Um, so because it was through an intermediary, Amber, listed through an intermediary, you feel that that intermediary had done their, their proper job at setting expectations in terms of valuation. Just talking er- yeah. earlier about how valuations are totally out of whack, but you got a very, very, you got the three, the three X <laughs> that we hear about. Um, and that's because the intermedi- intermediary had done their job essentially. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Um, mm-hmm. And uh, over and above the valuation and structure, like there's inevitably, inevitably going to be things that pop up in due diligence and having that professional intermediary really helps that process, even though that intermediary was helping or advising the seller, right? They, they still want the deal to get done in a fair and reasonable way. So I, I, mean, I, I think that's absolutely critical for getting the deal done. And it, it sounds obvious, but th- that's kind of, from what I had experienced, hard to find in the, in the UK, kind of small business acquisition uh, ecosystem. Mm-hmm. And the so two of the three owners are staying on in the business, but not as owners, or do they still did they retain no. some equity? No, they didn't. Um, it was discussed. <clears throat> it was discussed, but I think I, I think they just wanted like a clean break um, uh, because three of them had slightly different or have slightly different goals. But it was hard to kind of capture all of that and, and kind of balance all three of their goals. So this was just the cleanest way to do it. Um, and so they don't, but, you know, I think, I, I think I feel that they're kind of got new energy when they see me there and kind of Mm -hmm. some young energy, young blood, and it really is their baby and seeing someone else like adding value, hopefully I'm adding value, (laughs) but at least enthusiastic and trying to add value. I think it re-energizes them a little bit. And, and, and I feel like the energy is really good uh, between the three of us. And we're all kind of looking to the future for Amber um, mm-hmm. because I do think they want to see it successful. Obviously, I do too. So it's been a really good partnership. Mm-hmm. And so these are not reti- people who are retiring or retiring imminently then? 
Well, I think they will do in the in the next couple of years. Uh, I mean, there are uh, the two that I've stayed on are the ones fifty five and the one sixty. So yeah. they're not, you know, they're, 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 I don't think they want to stay in the business forever. But yeah. I do still think they have energy to to run the business, um, you know, for for the next. I mean, they will be with me for the first twelve months. That's kind of agreed upon. But I I think they'd be open to staying longer, and and I would be open to that too because we, you know, we're we're working together well. Um, but ultimately, I guess I, I don't know their motivations after twelve months. We'll see. We can have that discussion. But so that's that's. I guess specifically in pen and paper how it is, but we'll see how it evolves after twelve months. Great, um, and some some more on the business. So, can you share any of the numbers? Um, yeah, I can. Uh, so, top line uh, is about four and a half million pounds. So, I don't know what that is in dollars. Maybe six million, give or take, and then mm-hmm. six hundred and seventy thousand in EBITDA. So maybe. I don't know, 900,000 EBITDA dollars. So mm-hmm. a decent sized business. Um, yeah. Margins are, re- I mean, it's not like 30% profit margins uh, like some of the, the the industries, but I think for this industry, the margin of this business is very, very good. Um, and digging into that and looking at other acquisitions down the line, it's, it's, it's interesting to see where you can pull levers on other businesses that have less attractive margins. So it's really, it's really good that the business is quite well run. Um, and employee count around 30 now. I've, I've made a couple of hires since joining. Um, and yeah, I mean, happy to go into the other numbers that yeah. you think are useful. 30, you said three zero? Yeah, yeah. Okay. And it's and you mentioned the retail component. So is it primarily a, a, a retail operation? Yeah, the majority of it is private homeowners. So that may come, like we have a very premium showroom, which sounds obvious, but it's actually quite um, unique for the industry. Um, mm. the, the industry in the UK has a bit of a, a bad reputation, if you will. I don't know if you've ever watched the show White Gold on Netflix, but if anyone is no. curious, it's a very funny show about the industry in like <laughs> the, the 70s and 80s, I think. Um, and and apparently that's what it was like back then, but it isn't really like that anymore. But showrooms uh, kind of got out of favor, but this business and a handful of other ones have really push towards having premium showrooms where people can come and almost have an Ikea-like feel and touch and feel and see what the end product would look look like. Our, ours is kind of interior designed and, and it's like you step into this, you know, extension that's equipped with the windows and doors, all the furniture's there and it's, I mean, it's really impressive. So we've taken that approach. There is that retail component to it, but then we also are looking to make a push on, on kind of the more commercial side. We've done a lot of work with, with kind of private schools in the area, some private companies, and we're looking to push more on partnering with local architects for like conversion work. There's a lot of historic properties that are being kind of converted into more modern buildings or residences. So there is an aspect to that, but we're trying to diversify that. Um, uh, but that being said, there's a lot of there like for the reasons I, I alluded to earlier. There's just a lot of demand in the in the private uh, or from private uh, house homeowners. Mm-hmm. And and part of this that, that demand also in your thesis is just the, the greening of real estate and property, right? So a lot of I think you said that there's to the extent that a house hasn't already been been kind of renovated or that its windows and doors haven't been renovated, um, there is a need to make them more energy efficient. So it's not right. it's not merely you know 
old properties need to be remodeled every X number of years. It's also, there's this incentive now, incentives out there now to make everything more energy efficient. So there's kind of, that's kind of like a double tailwind, not just natural cycles of replacing your windows, but yeah. this additional, this, this additional incentive to make your home more energy efficient. Yeah, that's exactly right. And that's, and now you see if, if you, if you want to rent properties, they need to meet a certain kind of, we have like a sliding scale. A is, you know, optimal energy efficiency, B, C, D, et cetera. Yeah. Everything needs to be kind of, I believe it's C and above and very few properties. I think 67% when I was doing kind of work into the, like building my thesis, 67% of properties in the UK do not meet that requirement. Uh, so, you know, in order to hit those targets that the government would like, there's a lot, I mean, there's, there's millions of, of homes that need to be upgraded. Um, and yeah, I think th there's, there's, there's spinoffs to that, but I think that's probably the core, uh, aspect that'll be driving demand in the sector. Yeah. Phenomenal. You, I, I want to just get a little bit more into the acquisition before we hear about the transition, which I'm really also eager to di dive into. Um, you had mentioned to me offline that the deal almost died, as deals do, um, due due to like a financing issue. Can you can you talk about whatever that was and how it was resolved? Yeah, yeah. Um, so, like I mentioned up front. The debt market was or is challenging in the UK, and I'd gotten a bunch of indicative terms from kind of the classic lenders you would go to um, for an acquisition like this in the UK. And I've still got good relationships with them, and I'd built strong relationships with them. But I think just because it was on the smaller end of what they were looking for, their their argument up front was, "I like you, Paul. I like the deal, but you know, it's just it's a lot of work for us to do for pretty much you know the bottom end of what we're going to make on on kind of financing a deal." Uh, so they were on the fence. And then around that time, you saw like inflation start picking up, the war broke out, all these things happened. So indicative terms went to no longer issuing <laughs> the loan for this acquisition. So it kind of let me in, it left me in a bit of a tough spot. So that was the first time it almost fell over. I kind of kept that a little bit to myself. I didn't really tell anyone. I'm like, okay, back to the drawing board. I can, I can, I can solve this. And I went back to a few other lenders that were kind of on the smaller side, so slightly smaller than I was looking for, but this would be on their upper limit. So I thought, okay, they're probably yeah. going to be very interested in, in giving me this loan because they make the most money out of it. And that was the yeah. case. So I eventually got, um, so you get like indicative terms and then eventually get credit back terms, which is from how I understood it, signed, sealed, delivered, you know, the loan is yours. You just need to basically wait for the drawdown. Uh, so it's about a week before acquisition is to be closed. And I, I dealt with a peer-to-peer -peer lender. So a lot of private credit funds or alternative lenders in the UK are essentially kind of family offices or high net worth individuals basically issuing private credit in a fund capacity. And this alternative lender basically, you know, does the due diligence, the credit background, and then finance these deals. So it's essentially coming from individuals. So probably naively, I was thinking, okay, peer to peer. Yeah. Okay. It's always, that's always the case. But what it really was, was this company basically only after credit back terms have been issued, then it goes out to investor base to raise the money. Um, so there's no guarantee and they take no balance sheet risk. And I wasn't completely aware of that. I, I probably should have, well, I certainly should have been, but it was an oversight probably on my part. And kind of a week before the deal was about to close, they they contacted me to say, look, we, we, we're, we're a little bit short on the loan. And I'm like, okay, so, you know, 
when can it, you know, when are you going to get it? Like speak to whoever you need to speak to. Uh, they were like, well, it looks like it's probably not going to meet your timelines. And at this point, it, the deal had kind of like been dragging on a little bit because of the first kind of debt situation. I was kind of quietly kicking the can down the road and kind of everyone was getting a little bit um, anxious. Uh, yeah. So I just said, you know, look, this this can't be delayed any further. It needs to get done. And they basically said, well, we're not going to kind of find that gap. And it wasn't a huge gap, but, you know, it it was significant enough that, you know, the, the deal would not get done. I couldn't raise that equity gap in such a short time. So I had to go back to the owners and explain to them. And, and yeah, I was just really honest and upfront. And I explained to them exactly what had happened. And I said, um, this is the situation. It's obviously a tough credit market out there, but this is what they've come back with. And if we all want to get the deal done in kind of the next five days as had planned, we're going to have to just be a little more flexible on how the deal is structured. And then we can look to kind of refinance or kind of restructure things post acquisition. So essentially they were really kind enough to, to kind of increase the percentage of seller financing, whatever you want to call it to absorb yeah. that gap. Um, yeah. So the equity component didn't have to change. And that, that was also important to me because you go back to the opportunity cost of, 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 you know, not working. I, I couldn't really afford to raise any more equity or I could have, but then it just, my terms didn't look as attractive and the deal mm-hmm. looked less attractive for me, like the risk-reward trade-off. So that was really appreciated from my part. And I, I think that goes back to building good rapport with the owners, I think, um, that you hear so much about. But thankfully, it was resolved and we got the deal done. But, I mean, it was an emotional roller coaster to say the least. I think my wife probably almost killed me about 10 times in those last weeks. But uh, we got through it and we got the deal done. <laughs> well, congratulations. Uh, that uh, sounds like a nail biter for sure. Okay, Paul, well, you're, you're in the business. Um, let's talk a, a little bit about the transition and, and opportunities in the business. First, those opportunities in the business. You, you've already said that it's well run, that it has uh, good margins for its industry, uh, that the showroom looks great and is kind of cutting edge for its industry. Um, I was poking around the website. The website looks beautiful, like like a, a modern, you know, marketing optimized website. Mm. So um, uh, on the other hand, you, you you did also say that there, there, there is some low hanging fruit somewhere. So it, yeah, just kind of flesh that out a little bit. Like was this, was this your classic search target in the sense that like there were some, there's some really obvious things to go in there and improve because I'm just hearing that the, op- it's, it's, it's already a really efficient, optimized business. Yeah. I think in terms of, um, like in terms of things to, to make it more profitable percentage wise, there, w- there weren't, I mean, maybe in the long run, these things will turn out to be, uh, drive increase in profit margins, but it was more kind of on the operational side and adding an extra set of hands and maybe someone with a slightly different perspective. Mm. Um, some simple things like moving to digital contracts versus kind of pen and paper where you mm-hmm. send it in the post, wait for the customer to sign it and send it back. Mm-hmm. And then they, so, you know, just that kind of, adds or reduces turnaround times on sales by, you know, up to a week. Um, we've implemented with one of the old owners as one of the driving forces behind it, this kind of end-to-end uh, ERP, if you will, that's industry specific, but essentially you can kind of track the whole process from sale to completion of installation and set your timeframes as to how long each phase should take. And then if there's any bottlenecks, it kind of flags the person who's responsible at that stage and be like, hey, 
this is supposed to be done within this five days. It's not what's going on. And I can kind of look at it from the top looking down and be like, okay, the bottlenecks are here, here and here, what's going on. So it really allows you to kind of, you know, really optimize and stay on track of things. Whereas if everyone's kind of just in their day to day, it's hard to, 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 to know what, where it is until like you look at the numbers at the end of the month or quarter and be like, okay, why is that? And then, ah, that's a little bit, that's a little bit unfortunate. Why didn't we resolve that? But now you can kind of get a more, um, I guess, live and updated stance of where the business is. Um, so then there was a few, a few hires that, that, um, I was able to spend some time on getting re like, uh, basically changed the entire finance team. Um, not that the finance team before was bad, but I guess they were kind of limited. They were, their skill was up to like bookkeeping perhaps. Anything else was outsourced to a, an accounting firm. Whereas now we have the in-house expertise um, up to like a financial controller or director as you would, I don't know how you would call it, but basically, you know, full on management accounts, some reporting, like ad hoc analysis. Um, the, the guy that I, on board and is able to do these things. And he's a really young and hungry guy. And I think he'll be a huge benefit to the business. So, you know, spending some time and hiring a few key roles, uh, whereas, you know, the owners maybe didn't have that bandwidth at the time. Uh, and I think just spending some time on how we're going to expand the business, the business, I, like I said, I gave you the numbers kind of trailing 12 months, if you will. But what I didn't mention is they'd kind of been like that for the last three years. Um, and, mainly like like similar to what you would have heard a lot of times the owners were taking a good um salary plus dividends from the business you know it was more than sufficient to sustain their lifestyle that you know they've done very well for themselves so at their age they were just thinking you know i can go and open up in kind of the adjacent county i can do all these things but it's a lot of effort and i'm already you know doing very very well for myself where I, I'm seeing them like, well, that's not good enough. I mean, I understand that, but I'm not going to sit sure. and do nothing. I want to, I want to execute on these things. So sure. having their brain to pick on, uh, being able to pick, pick their brain on these things and then spending time thinking about how to do that, um, has also been, you know, I think, um, that's not really a low hanging fruit, but it's, it's just the extra bandwidth now to focus on those things. Um, there's, there's probably more things I'm not, I'm not thinking of. Um, and, and I probably did the business a bit of a disservice by saying lots of laying fruit because to your point on margins and, and things like that, it is a very well-run business. Um, I think, I think like, uh, like did like some marketing strategies that, you know, just email campaigns, things like that, that I think we could do a little differently, but no one really knows how to do it internally. Again, a lot of that is outsourced. So just, just bring a few things in house. So yeah, I think classic things I would say. Yeah, I would say, Paul, in some in some ways, this feels like the classic search situation where um, that you hope for. So it's a solid, the bones of the business are very, very solid. Uh, but the owners just were kind of resting on their laurels, just, just had different priorities in life, different mm -hmm. stage of life. Um, but tons of opportunity there for somebody who's a little bit younger, a little bit hungrier to come in and, um, and just, you know, t turn all these things on. I love it. It's very exciting. So when did you close? Uh, 15th of September, four months ago. Yeah. So <laughs> it doesn't sound like I want to just ask about the transition and the philosophy of, you know, don't touch anything for three months or six months or, oh no, do touch any, do touch things, <laughs> you know, make your impression felt like, you know, there's a new owner here and yes, there is going to be change. It sounds like your approach has been to not be shy about making some changes and making your presence felt, uh, respond to that. Um, 
Probably a bit of a balance. I mean, not not in the sense that I mean I would disagree with that comment in the sense that I, I I'm coming in every day and and telling people what to do. I think I'm definitely the person in the business that knows the least about the industry. So I rely heavily on everyone else, uh, and mm-hmm. that's pretty clear. So I always I'm, I'm 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 not ashamed to be like the dumbest person in the room and ask all the dumb questions. But mm-hmm. if I think that something is worth executing on, I I think we should do it, and I I'll I'll I'll, I'll, you know, speak to the owners, the, the former owners about that and get their thoughts on it. And sometimes most part, for the most part, we agree. And, and if we don't, I, I listen and I take the advice on, on why it may be a bad idea. So I don't think, I, I would say I'm more on the side of not changing anything. And I kind of think about things I can, you know, on a, like, like I said earlier, like a consultancy almost, you know, what do you guys think is important that you guys just haven't been able to tackle yet? Let, let me let me take a shot at that. I think I can I think I can resolve this, um, and then having some of my own ideas, but very much relying on everyone else. Uh, so I, I think that's the kind of approach I've been taking. Like um, I don't think there's any decision, key decision that I've taken that I would not run by the two former owners that are still on board. I mean, they're experienced, they're incredibly smart in the industry and business wise. I mean, like they they probably wouldn't say that if you asked them, but I can tell you like. You know, just just running a business, there's like patent recognition and things that their gut tells them is the right decision. And then I'll go and yeah. spend hours on an Excel. And I'm like, ah, you're right. Fancy that. You're, you're actually right. <laughs> so I trust their gut a lot and I rely on them quite heavily. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Well, but making a hire or two, th- those are big decisions. Yeah, they, they, they are. And it was somewhat necessary. Uh, so probably what I should have said is the the, the former finance manager, if you will, that was kind of the bookkeeper. That was the owner that left. That was his wife. So she was always going to leave at some point. Uh, that probably, I probably accelerated that a little bit with, with you know, n- no, um, no bad intentions. I just felt comfortable enough to do it earlier than I anticipated. Um, yeah. And she knew that that was going to be the case. She said, I'll, you know, sh- she would stay on as long as I needed. And I felt that we could, we could hire. But I think, I think, a robust finance team is really important if you want to scale these small businesses. Often, I, I think that's probably the weaker team within these small businesses because technically, like if, if you've read E-Myth in these businesses, they're a technician. They decide I'm going to start my own business. So they're very good at knowing like like the one ex-owner is the sales guy. The other one is kind of the ops guy. And they know that very well. And they're like, oh, well, just his wife can be our bookkeeper. That's fine. Yeah. And then that, she yeah. kind of learns the role and and that's kind of it kind of caps the finance team and i think you know if you're looking at doing further acquisitions or really want to do some 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 reporting you can outsource it but i think it's valuable to have someone in house so i thought that was important uh, and i think that is important so that was important for me and then there were a few other people that we replaced one guy retired um so there were a few other hires that were not not a result of kind of anyone being fired or or leaving because of anything bad that happened it was just kind of natural natural um, kind of churn within the, within the churn. business. Sure. Okay. And are there any, any kind of things that you think you've done right in your transition? Well, aside from what we've already talked about, for example, your day one speech, um, mm-hmm. you know, how did that go? Um, have you gone around and proactively interviewed everyone or, you know, the, the, T- top 10 people in the organization or anything like that? Any any techniques that you learn from your your own many interviews that you, you know, have become part of Paul's playbook? Yeah, so there was no day one speech. Uh, I actually was like, 
really stressed about what that would look like. And then speaking to the owners, sure. they just they, they just said like, look, that is not going to go down well in this kind of a business. I think it's important Ooh. if if we kind of not that it wouldn't go down well, but I I think it was important for because nobody knew about it before the acquisition, and just to like land them with a speech like, okay, this is your new owner, and I'm you know I'm 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 younger than the existing owners. It probably would have ruffled some feathers. So we decided that Ooh. we would approach it by going all together, like myself and the other owners, not one by one, but you kind of had we have our showroom, which is kind of the sales staff. We have our head office, which is kind of the ops and where we where the warehouse is. And then we have the fitters and installers that are on the road. So we kind of just did it like that. Um, kind of so it wasn't really a speech rather than just introducing me to the team. Uh, just informal chats, uh, letting them get to know who I am, just kind of, you know, almost as if you're at a networking event, if you will. Yeah. I guess it's yeah. it's it's a little bit different in like, you know, this there's probably thinking in the back of my mind, this is my 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 new boss. But it was very important for me to to kind of communicate that like, you know, I, I don't plan to change anything. Like Paul, who has got the same name as me, he's the sales director that is the former owner. It's, you know, in in my eyes, he's still the boss of like the showroom and everyone there kind of still reports to him. And, you know, yeah. I have no, I have no ego in the game. That's completely fine. And yep. I think that was important for everyone to, to know that not, not much is really changing. I'm, I'm really here to, to help with a kind of longer transition of the guys going out to retirement, but it's not like, okay, I'm the new guy. This is all going to change. So it was important. We kind of communicated that. And I think by the time we got out to the people that are out in the field, kind of they knew what was going on. So they, they, they had already kind of like phoned the ops owner to old owner to see what was going on. He reassured them. And then by the time I met them, I kind of kept that consistent messaging, which, you know, which was sincere. It's not like what I wanted them to hear. It's, it's you know, I think, I think it's the, the, the truth and they were okay with that. Um, so that was the approach that we took and we kind of brainstormed that before. So it wasn't just like winging it. We just thought that was the best approach. And I think it worked quite well. Um, mm -hmm. I think, I think it, yeah, I think it would have. Now that I know the people much better, I think it would have been very strange for me to up and give for me to stand up and give a speech. Um, so I, I'm I'm quite glad I didn't have to do that. <laughs> yeah, no, I mean I, I I like to ask that question just because it yeah it seems like such a nerve wracking exercise to to yeah. to do. Um, I, and I'll also say that um, now that I'm listening to you talk and the way you did it, it seems. Like to do a big day one speech, it does it, like an introduction speech. Hey, I'm the new owner. It does seem to contradict a little bit what the contents of that speech often is, yeah. which is no big changes. Life's not going to change, and you know. But it's like the audience is probably like, yeah, but you've convened us all into this room. You're making like, this big pronouncement, and yeah. so so you've got us all ginned up, and but you're telling us like it's no big deal. So which is it? You know what I mean? <laughs> so yeah, it, it's yeah. kind of it's kind of interesting. Yeah, exactly. I, I couldn't agree more. I think it depends on the business. Like coming from JP Morgan, we have these kind of town halls every month and things like that. People wouldn't be too suspicious if they're getting gathered for kind of, you know, a speech or, or something. But like in a, in a small business, people are like, huh, we all need to gather for a speech. What, what, what's going on? Already the anxiety yeah. would, you know, start bubbling. Yeah, yeah so, exactly. Yeah, I, I, think the, I, I think the approach we did specifically for, for, for my business was good. But, you know, I think any way can work. I think it's, you know, case by case. Paul, I know you're living in the UK during the week, but you know you, you still have a, a weekend home uh, where, where your family is, where, where your wife is. Um, so I want to talk about that for a second, and I also, of course, want to talk about the podcast. So let's talk about the the Geneva to. Well, where is the business, by the way? It's not in London. I know that much. It's in where is it? 
Yeah, so it's up in Norwich, uh, which is about two hours by train northeast of London. It's a very, very nice town. Um, I guess you could say it's 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 a wealthy-ish area. Um, I mean, not like London, but I mean, there's there is there is money here, so it's a nice upmarket place. Very beautiful countryside. The city is kind of medieval. I'd never been here before. I came to do like the first due diligence meeting uh, last year sometime, but I really, really like it. Um, and yeah, it's not it's not too far to get get to London if if you need to. I mean, I have family there, so I, I do go there sometimes. But most of the time, I'm going back to France, like you said, France, mm-hmm. Geneva. And 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 flights. There's a there's an airport where you can get direct flights from Geneva, or do you have to pass through Heathrow or fly into Heathrow, take the train, or what? Yeah, so I, originally I was going via London. Uh, sometimes Heathrow, Heathrow or some of the other smaller airlines that have the low cost airlines flying through them. Mm-hmm. But it's a little mm-hmm. bit more complicated. Then you've got to get into the city center. Then you've got to take the train. And once I'd landed here, or once I arrived here, I learned that I could fly, and this is going to sound way more complicated than it is, but I'll explain why it's easy, from Norwich directly to Amsterdam, which is like a 25-minute flight, and then from Amsterdam to Geneva. And Amsterdam and Geneva are both small airports, and I live 10 minutes from each of them, and I just travel with a backpack. So I literally just arrived 10 minutes before, kind of walk onto the plane, do that. If I'm in Amsterdam and the layover is like an hour or so, it's, it's a nice airport with lots of nice places to sit and work. So I kind of catch up on a few things there and then walk to my gate and catch the next flight. So it's really, it's quite a breeze, to be honest. Um, and I, I've done a lot of traveling, you know, since I joined JP Morgan. So it's quite, a lot, a lot of people hear that and they're like, oh my goodness, that must be a nightmare. To be honest, it isn't really for me personally. Um, it's, mm-hmm. it's not that complicated. Uh, so that's how I do it now. And I think door to door, it's quicker than going via London. Um, given all the kind of different modes of transport you have to eventually take going via London, which seems counterintuitive, but it, it's relatively straightforward. So I'm, I'm doing it most weekends or almost every weekend we've done it or I've done it. Um, and then, yeah, like, like I said, during the week here yeah, in Norwich. And, and door to door, what is it? What is the time travel? So depending on the layover in Amsterdam, which is kind of normally, a, I normally make it about an hour and a half just in case there's delays probably about three hours maybe three hours 15 depending because um, the hour the, so it's the first flight's 25 minutes from Norwich to Amsterdam Amsterdam Geneva is about an hour 10 and then include the time in Amsterdam and kind of the 10 minutes to and from the airport it's about that and it's 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 mostly on schedule so I can I can almost time it perfectly when I'm going to arrive home and and arrive here because I yeah. The schedules are the same every week. I know I take the same Friday flight and the same Sunday flight back home. So it's kind of like ingrained. The routine's ingrained now. <laughs> sure, sure. Well, and, and so how is that going? So so the flight itself to and from isn't that bad. Three hours door to door, three and a half hours door to door is not that bad at all. Yeah. Um, of course, of course, you are kind of living out of a bachelor pad, I assume, during the week <laughs> and and uh <laughs> oh, is this is that it behind you? Okay, this is it. Yeah, thought that might be the office. Um, and uh, and you know, your wife is three three and a half hours by flight away. Um, so anyway, yeah, h- how's that going? And um, just to kind of emotionally, personally, but also, do you have any thoughts about um, what you might tell other searchers who might consider something like that? Share what you can. Yeah, sure. So I think before I go into the kind of personal emotional side, I, I thought before acquiring it that, that I could probably be home as in kind of France Geneva area more than I have been. Hmm. And technically I could be, but I think as all the, the owner operators will tell you, it's different when you're on site 
speaking to people face to face in order to get things done, resolve problems. Um, you know, the, it, like people are comfortable doing things over video and 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 call, calling, but it really there really is a, a difference, and you can feel and see that. So I quickly realized I can't really just kind of work from from home in France because when problems come up, it's it's a little bit unfair if I'm kind of just like trying to resolve it via you know a, a mobile call where everyone's kind of like scattering around looking for answers and things like that. Um, so I am here pretty much all the time uh, during the work week and 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 that's okay. So that's the first point. So I, I think being thinking you're able to do it remotely, I think you really have to have a different approach to it. Like, you know, you have to have the mindset that you're not going to be an operator almost and be kind of be like a, like a capital allocator doing maybe multiple acquisitions or building a portfolio approach, which maybe potentially that, that will be something I work towards. But as the first one, it's a decent sized business. I can't just kind of like, you know, let it, let it uh, run remotely. I think I need to be a little more hands-on, especially because the, the, the current owners are working as hard as they did beforehand. And it seems un, unfair and unreasonable for me to kind of just be like working from France when they've essentially sold the business to me, but yet are working just as hard as ever. So I feel like yeah. I need to work at least yeah. as hard as them for, for it to yeah. be fair. Um, and so that, that was, you know, a, a change in my thinking early on and, and, and they were open. They said I could work remotely. Um, you know, they said I can have the flexibility, like I am able to do it. Not that they were giving permission, but they said like, from a tech standpoint, you can, you can easily do it, but I quickly learned it's not optimal. Um, and then on the, on the emotional personal side, I think it is difficult. Um, but even searching can be very emotionally <laughs> challenging so this almost seems way easier than kind of the challenges of searching but my wife and i um we we've we've kind of traveled a lot for our respective jobs she she used to work for ralph lauren for many years so she, which is also a us-based company their european headquarters was in geneva too so we've kind of you know always had these periods where like i'm on a on, a, on like a work project here and there and that's always fine like we always come and go and and uh, it seems to work fine, uh, and more than fine. I think we, we both actually find it quite exciting to take on these new new challenges. And eventually, when the end of the school year is up, my wife and daughter will be joining me, and we'll be here. We'll be based here, um, you know, permanently. I don't know if it'll be forever, but definitely based here permanently. So it's only a short, you know, short term thing that I'm going back and forth mm. every weekend. Um, mm -hmm. it's more challenging with my daughter because I, I miss her, um, a lot. Uh, yeah. and you know, at her age being three and a half years every week, like she has these like monumental kind of growth, um, or like growth in like things she learns or things she, you know, and like you miss these things yeah. and, and it's, and it's, yeah. and it, that, that's quite tough, but, um, yeah, sure. but you know, I think. I think I'm I'm doing it for the right reasons and hopefully um I don't really think she understands what's going on but if she did I think she would understand that I'm doing it for the right reasons. Uh mm -hmm. but yeah mm -hmm. so it, it it's not easy but I think having a supportive wife and having someone on kind of the same page as you is is very helpful because it's definitely not without its challenges but as long as you kind of know what the end goal is and you're kind of on the same page that makes it massively helpful. Uh, so yeah, I think, I think for the most part, it, it's going really well. I think it's, it's not as comp, almost everyone can't believe that, that I'm doing what I'm doing or that we're doing what we're doing. But honestly, we don't really, like before I know it's Friday and I'm flying back home and it's like, mm -hmm. it's, it, you know, it's, uh, it goes by so quickly and then 
Yeah. So, and, and also it's been three months of this. So maybe, maybe in a year's time, if this was still happening, it would start to get exhausting, but three, four months with a couple of weeks over Christmas altogether. So, you know, it's manageable. Well, you know, it, it's funny because it actually probably means that you're more intense and more visible in the business than if you were living locally, hmm. because while you're there Monday to Friday, you're pro I mean, you got nothing else to do, but just think, 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 be in the business, be leading this new business. It's just like, you got no other distractions because you can't go home to the family because they're not there. So, so in some ways, like it, it's probably had like an effect of, of getting you even more entrenched and ensconced in the business than, than less than somebody who, you know, is, lives down the, you know, lives 20 minutes away. So, yeah, I think so. I mean, other than going to the gym, I pretty much, that's pretty, my, my life is pretty much the gym <laughs> right. and, and, and working right. while I'm here in Norwich. I mean, I'll go to some good restaurants and stuff because it is a nice city, but you know, I, I find myself just kind of working at night because you know, there's, I'm like, well, you know, I'm nothing else that I can do. I'm just going to like this, those emails I didn't get to, let me just tackle those tonight. And then <laughs> the next night, something similar. So it does, yeah. it does lead yeah. you to be a little more, uh, uh, well, efficient is definitely not the word, but I guess busy during the week and you can get more done, I would say. But yeah. uh, whether that's optimal or not, I don't know. But uh, but yeah, I do agree with your comment that I'm kind of like just working the whole time I'm here, basically. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. It'll be it'll be really interesting to see how, how it evolves over the next six, 12 months. Um, Paul, one more question on the, on the acquisition, then let's get to the pod. How... Aside from the, the the family stuff and the remote, um, the Geneva to Norwich is this pronounced Norwich or yeah. Norwich? Yeah, no, Norwich. Norwich. Okay. You kind of, you kind Norwich. of. It's a silent the W. Yeah, Norwich. Okay, okay, Norwich. Um, how do you feel being an operator? So you you've never been an operator before. That's obviously, and in your your in some ways you you kind of have the common pattern of kind of from high finance to SMB operator. Um, very very different worlds. Even though this is a common pattern. How have you found that transition? How have you found becoming an operator? Yeah, be better than I expected, Will, to be honest. I think uh, I was that, that was probably the thing I was most anxious about. Like, would I be good? And I don't know if I'll be good yet. And then will I enjoy it? Uh, which I also didn't know. But I can say, well, at least four months in, that I really am enjoying it. Like, I, I think that there's like a never-ending to-do list, constant challenges all the time, but it's exciting things to tackle. And it's things I don't think... I can't solve. It's just almost a matter of time. Uh, like the time is the limiting factor. Um, mm. And it's really, it's really interesting to be able to think, okay, what's important? What's not? Let's tackle this and drive value. Like each decision you make is, is making an impact for better or worse on the business. Whereas, I, I mean, it's like I loved my time at JP Morgan, don't get me wrong, but you know, your, 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 your decision-making ability is very diluted after, you know, it goes up certain layers of management. It's like, okay, Interesting idea, Paul, but no, <laughs> but you know, but uh, we're not going to go with it. Um, which, 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 I mean, it is what it is. So I'm really enjoying the operating side of it. I must admit, um, I think it helps to have a business that's kind of, you know, not, not, not a turnaround, if you will, like something that's kind of stable and profitable. Um, although obviously the economy is not what it was, but it's still a good sound business. And then also having good people in the business that, you know, make your day to day pleasurable, all of those things help. And I think I'm, I, I was lucky to, to found a business that's like that. But yeah, I must admit, like coming from a capital allocation background, I was a little bit anxious and I I still would like to kind of go that route eventually and, and maybe build a portfolio or make further acquisitions. But as an operator, 
in isolation, I think I'm really, really enjoying it. Yeah. Well, if you can learn to be a good operator, um, becoming a capital allocator later, you'll just be that much better positioned to to know and understand it. Um, Absolutely. Down, down the path. So that's great. Couldn't agree more. I, didn't, I, I, I honestly could even, I mean, I, I, I have my own kind of personal portfolio, but it, it, just getting into the intricacies of a small business and wrapping your head around unit economics, even though conceptually I knew what all those things were, at least my personal investment was like, oh, this business is interesting. It does interesting things. Let me just, you know, invest a little bit. But now it's really like, I want to know, like, what are the margins of this business? Like, I really get into the weeds on every stock I would purchase in my portfolio. And I, I do think it makes you a better investor, kind of knowing how businesses are run rather than, yeah, just kind of like looking at what's the hot stock of the day kind of thing, you know, which is very easy yeah. to do. You can always kind of back into a thesis because it's doing X, Y, and Z, but being able to know the intricacies and, and the economics of the business, I think it does make you a better investor. And then when you want to execute on that at some point, you know, having that experience, I think will be invaluable. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's a perfect segue to talk about the podcast, Paul, because you're reminding me um, the way what you just kind of encapsulated there of me and my relationship to search. So I have all these conversations about it. You know, I, I, I like to think I have some pretty deep knowledge about it, but I have never been a practitioner. I've never, I've, I, you know, I've, I'm kind of flirting with my way through uh, a, a very light part-time search, which, I, which I'm not even sure I would consider a true search yet. Um, and I certainly haven't, you know, operated that business that I bought. So, uh, and yet I talk about these concepts, you know, all week long. So um, let's, talk about the podcast first from the perspective of why, you know, why did you do it? Yeah. So at the time I, we launched the podcast with, I launched it with a, a friend and co-host at the time, David. And we were, I think I found him originally on search funder. Like I, I put a post up on search Funder, he responded and I kind of added it on LinkedIn. I looked at his background and we had a, we had a chat privately and we were kind of on the same page. And we also both found it difficult to get information or advice or feedback from other people in the UK search community. Um, it was challenging. And we were both having similar conversations with, you know, whether it be people around due diligence or interesting topics that we would share between the two of us. And we thought, well, why don't we just start recording these conversations? And then yeah. maybe other people will find it helpful too. We can also kind of chronicle our journey if we kind of come up, come up with or, or, or find challenges, you know, just just talk about them and hopefully just be helpful and just to see what comes of it, to be honest. Um, so that's how it started. And it kind of slowly progressed and, you know, the community around it now, it's, it's very UK and European focused. Yep. We've had on guests from the US and Canada and other places because they're doing interesting things and it's always interesting to hear how other people think about this kind of ETA ecosystem, but it mm -hmm. is, it is biased towards, um, UK and Europe. And yeah, I, then I later realized it's almost a bit of a cheat code to, to speak to people that you probably, not that you would never be able to speak to, but you know, you wouldn't be able to get them on your calendar, like in two weeks notice to discuss a topic that, you know, you really needed to know the answer about X, Y, and Z, but, oh, well, I have a podcast. So do you want to come and chat about it? And, they, and then they, they end up, uh, you know, reaching out. And then, then off the back of that, friendships and kind of relationships um, would would kind of, you know, almost every single time be uh, spin off from that. So that's been great. And the community has been building. I think 
it probably helped me um, kind of on the investor, uh, kind of building non-traditional search fund investor group, if you will. I, I touched on that earlier. I think the podcast was definitely um, a driver of that. Uh, also, just relationships with other service providers and just building a bit of an ecosystem around it was another thing I saw developing that I really liked. And that's part of the reason why I want to keep it going post-acquisition because even though I'm no longer searching, there's been some topics around operational side and maybe it'll be a bit of a mix, but I still want to keep it kind of search focused because I think it is a really cool ecosystem and and the more people we can help, the better. So that's it at a, at a high level, I guess. Um, it's, it's, yeah, it's been, and I don't know about you, Will. I mean, I think, I, by the way, I think I've told you this online, but I think you do a great job and I think you're a great interviewer, but, and I don't know if you found it challenging in the beginning, but it was quite a good learning experience. I've always like to kind of push myself and feel like a bit of an imposter and kind of push my boundaries to see if I can grow. And it was quite challenging mm -hmm. to hear my own voice and you hear all the ticks you say when you speak to people. And I was a little bit anxious to release the first episodes, but when I did, the feedback was 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 decent enough that I thought, okay, I can keep going with this and then just improve and get better. And I think it's just, be, you know, I, I've, I've had uh, other benefits personally from it that I didn't really anticipate, which... Uh, were, I don't know how you feel about that, but that was quite interesting. A little bit of a personal development moment uh, from sure. the podcast. Um, and yeah, I think, I think yeah, it's mainly just the community behind it like, um, and the people I get to meet, meet and speak to. Um, I mean, we've, we've had a few sponsors, so it's, we haven't really figured out how to, or not figured out, we haven't really focused on monetizing or anything. I mean, it, it costs me money. It doesn't like, um, overall for sure, it's, 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 you know, it's been like a loss making process financially but in terms of kind of the spin-offs and the network and the investors and all of these things that i've found i think it's been a huge huge benefit um so yeah i mean i really really enjoyed yeah yeah that's great thank you for sharing all that paul I, I i second i think everything you said just on the on the anxiety of of releasing those first few episodes into the world this is going to sound cocky, but it's not meant to. For some reason, I didn't have that anxiety. And that's not because I'm super confident in my own voice or in my interviewing skills at all. I, and frankly, you know, in certain social situations, like in a room full of people, I'm, I'm, I'm quite introverted. I'm not, I'm, I'm not an extrovert at, by any stretch or, or somebody who calls attention to themselves. So in some ways, it was, um, it's counterintuitive that I wouldn't feel discomfort releasing this into the world. But I, what I have, whatever kind of natural inclination I have to this, um, is one-on-one -on -one conversations. I've always enjoyed kind of deep, and this is kind of classic introvert stuff. Mm. Is like one an introvert's preference of connection with other human beings is kind of kind of deep one-on-one -on -one conversations, and that's what podcasting is. So from that respect, I kind of I did have that kind of natural. Um, natural inclination to it. But yeah, putting yourself out into the world, that doesn't come naturally to me. But for whatever reason, it just, maybe just because it felt so, you know, there, there's so much technology between you and the listeners. You're just like ba basically pressing a button, like upload this MP3. <laughs> and like, that, that's all it really is. It, it feels anticlimactic to put it out into the world. I will say as it's grown, I'm, I'm, I'm becoming more self-conscious, not less, because I, you know, there's obviously there's more people listening now. So um, there's more, pressure. Um, but I think that comes with sort of any, any, any trajectory where you're having some growth, some success, you know, you start to feel a little bit of, a little bit of pressure to perform. Whereas before it was like easy breezy, no big deal. Yeah. So, um, all very interesting. Um, 
the uh, for for folks who haven't yet listened to Buy Then Build, what what are what's an episode or two that you might might call out that would be a good entree into your your podcast? Yeah, I think um, the latest one may be interesting with Simon Webster. So he raised the first search fund uh, in the UK in the '90s and it was successful. And he's now lecturer at the business, all the business schools, kind of teaching it and leading it in these European markets and. He's a really interesting guy. We we just we're about to do like a little mini series on the different European regions, and we started off with the UK, and we've got a few more about to come up. I think that's a really interesting that's a great conversation. Idea. Uh, mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, well, I, I brought on a new co-host who's kind of a traditional searcher at the beginning of his journey, uh, just to kind of balance the conversation rather than me skewing too much on operational topics. And it was his idea, so credit to him. Uh, uh, thank you, Graham. And so that one's that'll be an interesting one. The most popular one, uh, which I also really enjoyed, and, and it was funny because the guy, Brad Nathan, excellent, fantastic guy, he's Canadian. He was on holiday in Greece uh, having lunch, I think, in Mykonos. And you can kind of hear the nice music in the background. I can see everything happening in the background. And like, he, he's <laughs> I love a, that episode. He's a, I love that episode. <laughs> he's apologizing now and then for like the music. Yeah, yeah. And that was by far and away the most popular episode. And, and he's got a really interesting approach. So... He's acquiring businesses in Canada, North America, uh, Europe, uh, uh, or like UK, Nordics. And it's all, he's done about 60 acquisitions, I believe. His portfolio is doing about 600 million in revenue and 60 million in EBITDA. So kind of, you know, 10 million per acquisition, 1 million in EBITDA, kind of, and he, and he doesn't really, fall, it's a, some are a little bit above, some are a little bit below, but he just really has this approach. And he doesn't want to kind of, go any bigger because then it puts the risk of the portfolio like it becomes an outsized position so he just has this really interesting approach and he's doing it at such scale and such speed and he goes into also how it 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 honestly has not been easy and he has some good advice and some really good insights and just what he's doing is is really unique i kind of like maybe maybe i think about chenmark i don't really know the size of their portfolios but maybe they're kind of early on in a similar journey but but I just found it unique that he's kind of done 60 now and they're all kind of like yeah. similar financial size. And he, he's kind of like, this works for me. I'm just going to execute this relentlessly. And he's doing like a really good yeah. job. Um, yeah. So that, that that's a really good episode. And and um, yeah. he's a great guy. And then maybe one more that stands out to me. It's a little bit not kind of searcher specific, but um, there's a guy in the UK called Joel Ratner. And he, he, he took over his father's business, which was a very, you know, reasonably big retailer here in the UK, jewelry, jewelry retailer. And he went on this acquisition spree. It was eventually listed publicly and he was raising tons of money. And he had a bit of a, a persona about him uh, in the media. And he was like, they love to hate him, if you will. And he, you know, he, he grew this business exceptionally well. He started acquiring a few of the big jewelry retailers, retailers in the US. And then he made this speech uh, and he had a, you know, he made this comment comparing his products to prawn, a prawn cocktail or something and, and, and that it probably lasts longer and costs the same to buy it or something like that. <laughs> and and speaking to him and getting to know him, he's actually a very, very down-to-earth and, and sensible guy. And he'd made that joke many times, but the media kind of spun this. And literally mm. overnight, the stock price plummeted and he went from having kind of multiple houses all over the world, flying everywhere by private jet to, to, to almost bankrupt and then he pivoted and kind of came back from the dead uh, after after a few years of depression. And it's really a fascinating story. There's actually a book about him, and that was you know just 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 an interesting perspective and an interesting episode from someone who 
you know, was doing acquisitions, so kind of an acquisition entrepreneur, if you will, but just doing it at a very mm. different scale and just living a completely different life to kind of the searcher who's maybe a little bit more humble and kind of, you know, takes a very different approach to what he did. Um, not, not to say that he did anything, you know, not, not to say that he, he's, he's um, any better or worse, but it was just such a fascinating conversation. So those are three good ones, but um, that stand out to me as, you know, interviewing them, they kind of resonated to me as guests, but I get feedback from different topics. Like even if it's one about tax, which can sound really boring, but it's specific to the UK. People love that one. So, you know, those are three that I liked. That's great, Paul. Th those are great recommendations. Thank you for that. Uh, last question on on all of this. Um, so you want to continue with it. The uh, So I want to continue with acquiring minds indefinitely, no matter what comes comes next. I'm, I'm predicting a, a search and an acquisition. Um, but obviously, podcasts take a lot of time. Mm -hmm. I assume you bringing in kind of a kind of a co-host is is part of you offloading some of the work on the podcast. Uh, is it naive to think that could like could you continue doing the podcast by yourself as you operate your new acquisition, or is it naive to think that you can both host a podcast and you know be a good operator in your new business um, at the same time? Um, it is tough. I think. I think if I could, if I had to turn the podcast more into like a blog about my journey, like I think of guesswork investing and and these people that yeah. are chronicling their journey, and yeah. very very like for anyone listening, that's a great read. Um, yes. And so if I pivoted the podcast to something like that, it would be easier because you know I could just turn on the mic, and not to say that what he's doing is because he's writing. I think that's way more complicated. It's easier just to turn on a mic and hit record and then kind of just like you know speak about your thoughts. Uh, yeah. <laughs> so that would be easier, but I, I, I don't think I'm that interesting. So I don't know if anyone would listen and I like speaking to interesting people. So for me, the challenging part is finding the time and coordinating with the guests. And that takes up a lot of time. So, um, I don't do a ton of preparation. I'll do a little bit because I, I want to be somewhat prepared, but I prefer just to have like a bit of a conversation. So I want to know what they've done and what they're up to, but then I want to explore that a little bit more during the episode. Uh, so similar mm -hmm. to how the guest is listening to this conversation for the first time, it's also my first time having the conversation. And then, ah. and, and, and then, you know, so it's, it's mainly about scheduling um, and finding the guests and coordinating, coordinating the diary. And now find, because before I was very flexible on timing, whereas now it's more difficult to find time for the guest and for me. So it's just getting even more complicated on the scheduling side. I've thought about like maybe taking off one day in a month and doing like four in a day, but I'd probably die. Yeah. <laughs> And then kind yeah. of you have a month's runway or some way to get around that. Um, so, so we can, we can brainstorm about that offline. Will, but, but, mm. but I definitely want to keep it going, but it is, it is not easy um, in terms of the calendar and finding the time. And in terms of topics that interest you. So now that you've done a search, it sounds like search is, is still something that interests you. Although it also sounds like you just really like the ecosystem, like the people and want to continue to provide this service to the community. But in terms of your own selfish interest and in, in the topics that interest you, are you uh, now kind of listening to SMB operations podcast? Is, does one, is there one out there that you like? Like, d does your mind shift where it's like, you're not thinking about search anymore now? Like you're all, you're thinking all about operations and that's where your, you know, your content interests lie. Um, yes, I think so. So, and, and there's not, so operations also sales I've been listening to and, uh, podcasts and audiobooks a lot on sales and kind of mm -hmm. persuasion. And, and there's a lot of classics, mm -hmm. 
that that people yeah. speak about because there is a, a heavy sales aspect to our business. Um, and I mean, in general, it's obviously a, a, an important skill set, but a lot of that and a lot, yeah, a lot of operational stuff and effective kind of management, leadership, time management. These are the things that I'm finding I'm struggling a lot with. Like the leadership side, I don't know if I'm that good, but it, I feel like I'm not bad and it kind of come naturally. Maybe that's kind of my sport background, but I I get overwhelmed with the time. Like I feel like my to-do list is just unmanageable and and kind of mm -hmm. I end up forgetting about things and if people don't remind me, it's like, oh, should I go to do that? I'm sorry, I don't mean to swear. Um, and, and it kind of gets a little bit overwhelming. So I've been trying to study that. So things that come to mind, I mean, most most of them are audio books now, Will, to be honest. I think the only other, mm. the only podcast I listened to, and I just found it recently, but I've been kind of binging on it. And then I bought his book was this guy, Alex Hormozzi. I feel like he's very popular in the US, but I only just yeah. stumbled upon yeah. him. But um, yeah. but he's incredibly smart. I mean, and like, I mean, I mean, obviously they're very like muscular looking guy, but like at first glance, I, I was <laughs> yeah. like, I, I was I was a little bit like taken aback, but I was intrigued. But I mean, he's incredibly smart and his clarity of thought is really good. So I, I quite enjoy his content and his book. I listened to the audio book was, was really good. Um, and then there's a few other classic sales and kind of leadership books that, that, uh, I've been listening to, but I don't know if you have any recommendations on the ops side for podcasts, but nothing that I've come across, but, but happy if you have any good ones, I'm happy to, you know, I, I, there, there are, are certainly a couple, um, in the States. What's interesting is, is that there don't seem to be any, like there's a handful of ETA podcasts hmm. that are kind of now well-known and kind of like the go-tos. And I don't feel like the same thing exists on the operations side, which is which is a bit of a head scratcher for me, mm -hmm. um, because there, there's actually I assume kind of a lot more to say about operations. I mean, for one thing, it doesn't stop. Unlike search, you know, you buy your business and then kind of that's the end of that cycle. Mm -hmm. um, operations is this perpetual improvement cycle, and there and there's so many facets to it. Like you said, I mean, there, there, there's sales and there's marketing and there's people and there's capital allocation and there's finance. I mean, and, and on and on and on. Mm -hmm. um, but uh, but uh, but a couple of names. I mean, Alex Bridgman's Think Like an Owner podcast. He has he he gets much more into operations yeah. than some of the other ETA, ETA podcasts. Um, Josh Schultz, I, I, I know, has a has a semi I think semi regular podcast where will where where he will do a deep dive into like a particular type of business, be it a plumbing business, a, a garage door repair business. Okay. Um, John uh, John Wilson. Uh, uh, had owned and operated, um, so, but I don't know. Is that still going? I don't, I don't think that that's, I don't think so. Okay. Um, so I, I've never connected with John, but I, so, um, but it, it hasn't published since June. So I guess, I guess it's not, or it, it's on hiatus. Yeah. Uh, so anyway, there, th th those are the three that come to mind, but none of those are like, you know, except of course, Alex is very regular, but his isn't, isn't explicitly operations, although he does do more and more about operations. And it, it's interesting to me. It's like, why, why isn't there more out there about, um, operations. Do you, do you have any thoughts about why that might be? Is it not as easy a topic? It's not as kind of like contained as search maybe? I, I think, I honestly think- or, or are operators too busy to listen to podcasts sort of I, thing? I, I think it's that, honestly. And th that's why when you said um, uh, John Wilson's one, Own and Operated, I, what, what was, I'd be curious to know why he stopped that or why it's on hiatus because I felt like he initially had some guests on, but then it was more about his own journey, which, like I said, seems easy to talk about. And yeah, and and I found his quite interesting. It's it was a bit US centric, so you know there were bits of it that were not relevant for me. But I think he was quite entertaining, yeah. to be honest. And 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 his story was quite 
quite cool to follow. So I think I think yeah. if people did it that way, it would be easier. But yeah, just finding the time to do deep dives and schedule guests, that's probably harder to do unless unless you know you, you you've been always been doing that. But if you're just kind of doing a like a blog version of a podcast, I think that would be possible. I mean, yeah. I think so. So it would be good. I mean, yeah. I mean, um like I said, I'm not interesting well, enough to do it myself, but but someone should. Well, maybe you're underestimating yourself. I mean, you have one successful podcast. Here I am interviewing you about what you're doing. So I find what you're doing interesting and I bet a lot of other people would too. So um, maybe you're the guy to do the, to, to, to launch a podcast around what he's doing as an operator. So don't be, don't be too humble there, Paul. Well, this has been great, sir. Um, loved hearing about your acquisition. Of course, loved hearing about your podcast as well. Um, and uh, thanks for Thanks for giving me so much of your time. Thanks for coming on, and, and thanks for for buy and build. I mean, it's a it's it's been a wonderful um, addition to the ETA ecosystem. Thanks, Will. Thanks, and yeah, like I said up front, I'm a huge fan of your your, your podcast. I think up until the day I acquired, I'd listened to every single episode. I'm catching up now. I, like I said, I just listened to the the one with the two guys who had the hedge fund. Great, great episode. Uh, and thanks for having me on. I mean, um, I'm 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 happy that we kind of talk on, offline, the two of us, and I'm curious to see how your journey goes, spurring you on to make an acquisition. And I, I know, yeah. I, know I, I, I feel like you, you're underestimating yourself too on that side. I'm pretty sure you could execute on that now. You're, you're, well, you're well versed on the ETA ecosystem. Um, but yeah, I really do appreciate you having, us on, having me on and uh, look forward to keeping in touch. Great, Paul. Well, we'll, we'll, we'll get you back on here um, maybe in the later part of this year to see how things uh, have gone since. So until then. Cool. Cheers, Will. Well.